Hello and welcome to Atomic Geekdom. My name is Dave. I hope you're having a spooky, spooky week. Halloween is, well, next week, but people are going to celebrate it this weekend because nobody celebrates it after it happens. And it happens on like a Thursday or Wednesday. So people will be out in costumes and trick-or-treating and getting drunk and all these kinds of awesome things or attending haunted houses. Those are more fun. Uh, just be safe out there. And for this week, we're going to tell you to turn off the lights. Maybe light a candle or two first. Don't bump into stuff. Especially don't bump into the candle. You don't want to start a fire or anything like that. Um, let me think of other crappy dad jokes to tell. Uh, just set the mood because we're going to read a couple entries from creepypasta.com. Um, it is a website where people submit stories and whatnot. Uh, it is the website that started the entire Slenderman madness. Uh, but we've got three stories chosen. Um, we'll read them for you, and you can enjoy this theater of the mind, as it were. Joining me this week to read stories to you. We're going to, you know, you can, we can read you a story before you go to bed. However you want to imagine this scenario. Uh, is Kyle... Hey, everyone. And Johnny. Hi. <clears throat> so, we're going to read these stories to you, um, but first we're going to do some housekeeping in the form of news and updates and that kind of junk, because um, there is stuff to talk about, like a brand new Star Wars trailer that came out along with the release of all the tickets that are probably gone at this point anyway, but... Um, Movie tickets went on sale. The trailer is out there. If you want, you can go to atomicgame.com to find the trailer, but I'm sure you've watched it dozens and dozens of times already, and that's cool. Um, but what did, uh, what did uh, you guys did, 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 uh, think of the uh, the trailer, not the podcast? <laughs> I enjoyed it. I thought it was a lot better than the Last Jedi's trailer for their final one. Why even bring that up? <laughs> what is because you don't like The Last Jedi, you son of a bitch? No, just in terms of uh, comparing it. Comparing it to the most recent Star Wars thing? Yes. Well, that's not even, the, because we had Han Solo. To the most to the most recent Skywalker Saga trailer. No, you're oh, just you're just bringing enough. Last Jedi in it just to start a fire. That's all. I like oh, Last Jedi. But we did start the fire. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, I enjoyed it. I th It was definitely better than the teaser trailer for uh, Rise of Skywalker. Uh, it it didn't give... There you a... go again, comparing it to something. It's a teaser trailer, though, so it's different. Why can't right. this be its own thing, you comparing addict? I'm comparing it to itself. <laughs> yeah, why? <laughs> Just talk about what you liked. <laughs> I, I mean, I liked everything about it. I liked that we're, we're visiting newer <clears throat> planets, it looks like, and that 3PO is going to have a very tear-jerking moment in in the middle of the movie, probably. I hope it's at the be... beginning and he dies immediately. C-3PO sucks. Go ahead. Wow. Hate, hateful. How dare you say that to the, per to, the, to the person who's been in all nine movies. And should have been How in maybe you? one of them. Was needed in maybe one of them. Probably needed in like, none of them. I don't like C-3PO, but I am looking forward to that scene. Like, I, I think it's going to be... I think it is going to get me. Because he is the staple of the series. Preparing to say goodbye to my friends. Or some bullshit. Who cares? 
Stupid robot with a red arm. Well, we all know Dave's a robot hater, so no, uh, we can no. Just go with that, yes, Dave's a C three PO hater. Robot hater? No, I don't mind robots. In fact, I've said repeatedly that I'm ready for the <laughs> robot overlords to take over. Uh, what if they were all C three POs? Then I will rise against them, and it will be <laughs> it'll be ridiculously easy for us to defeat them. Very true. Ah, oh, it's raining inside my house. Hold up. Johnny, Star Trek, Star Trek, uh, I know you love Star, Star Trek. I love it. I love know you Star love Star Trek. Trek, and I've been waiting for you to say something like it, and that's why it popped into my head. Uh, Star, Star Wars trailer, what would you think? Uh, it was fine. Uh, I, think, I didn't think it was anything, like, special. Mm-hmm. Um, it, my hype hasn't increased for it. And uh, and I'll be honest, you know, I've said this from the beginning. I don't like the idea of Palpatine coming back, and right. I didn't like his little voiceover. Um Mm-hmm. But I'm I'm still uh, I'm still anxious to see the movie. Okay, so, the so next, I'm looking, I'll see it. Your excitement level hasn't moved at all for it. Yeah, it hasn't changed. the The last trailer didn't do anything for me. Didn't make a twitch in your pants. It did not. Nope. Nope. Not even a little jiggle. You know, any any time there's uh, a Carrie Russell sighting, there's a, there's a chance for a little twitch. Uh, but there was no Carrie Russell. We saw the body of Carrie Russell. There you go. That's enough, I think. <laughs> I didn't even know it was Carrie Russell. <coughs> you didn't? Nope. Oh, okay. Oh, surprise. Yes, surprise. I guess. You know, she's 43. I just looked her up. And doesn't look a day over 22. Oh, she looks great. Yes. Uh, getting getting that 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 J.J. Abrams worked with me rub. Mm-hmm. Mm. As, their second movie with her with him together. It's third third time overall since she worked with him on Felicity. Oh, gotcha. But movie wise, it's only the second time, right? Um, actually, uh, I don't know. Who cares? That's a question. Um, okay. no, it's three because she was in Star Trek. Oh yeah! Silence. <clears throat> I had to think about it for there for a second. <clears throat> um, what else do we need to talk about? Uh, the website atomicism.com is going to be starting not this week, and this is news to Kyle who's listening. But next week, a new column, a weekly column, updating you on the goings on in the Arrowverse. This is one because when this podcast and website started. We were heavy into Arrow, and we were almost an Arrow post-show, because we would do a review every week, pretty much of the episode, because that's when it was awesome. Um, And so, we're going to be discussing everything but, and this is going to sound awkward, but just none of us are caught up on it, everything but Black Lightning on a week-to-week basis. And technically, except for the crossover, Black Lightning's not Arrowverse, so... Um, but, uh, hopefully we'll be caught up by winter and we can put Black Lightning into the fold, take Arrow out, add Legends, that kind of thing. Make sense? Makes sense to me. So... I'm on board. Yeah, so every week we'll have a little paragraph about each show, um, just a little wrap-up of the episode and maybe, since it's leading to it, um, how it might have connected, excuse me, into the crisis situation, even though really... 
Flash, and I'm sorry, Arrow is the only one that's like heavy crisis stuff right now. So, but I have not watched this week's episodes of anything yet. So, perhaps more shows have talked about it, but I doubt it. Not as much as Arrow, at least. Cool. No yeah. one else is talking. All right. Yeah, the only <laughs> the only one right now is Arrow. I haven't watched anything with Flash, uh, Batgirl, or sorry, Batwoman. Holy and crap! Super Supergirl. I mixed those two. Batwoman and Supergirl don't have anything to do with Crisis just yet. <coughs> um, yes, a Batgirl show would be welcomed at any time, uh, as long as it's not Burnside Batgirl. Cause oh, God, no. That's the worst. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right, so that's happening, and the first one will be up next week. We're going to release them every Friday, if not uh, the day before, because the shows air, then we're done watching them by Wednesday, so... Um, if they're up and ready, we'll try to get out there, but at least by Friday, you'll have that article. So something cool to look forward to, uh, this weekend, wizard world Madison's taking place. If you have not gotten your tickets and you're in the area, go ahead and do so on wizardworld.com. I don't have a code for you, so no discount this time, but you know, just go. It's like every smallville person you'd want to see is there. So good. Indeed. Good times. And Kevin Nash. Yeah. He was he was in the NWO. That's his claim to fame. <clears throat> um, there's other people too. Carrie Elwes is there and he's awesome, so they have actually two Princess Bride characters there. Or actors, excuse me. Uh and we will be there, so we'll be looking for all kinds of cool um cosplayers and panels or you know, whatever. We'll be there Friday and Saturday. And yeah. So there's that. Anything else you guys want to touch on before we get to the spooky stories from the past week? Johnny, how's your Smash Brothers stuff? <coughs> uh, it's going all right. It's going all right. I'm enjoying it. I'm having a good time. Yeah, and you, uh, what's your what's your uh, win loss ratio? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I'm probably uh, come on about now. even. I'm probably about <laughs> even with wins and losses. That's good. Uh, do, and you have every single character, like DLC included. Oh yeah, I got them all. Is it worth getting the DLC, like the Persona, like Joker and Banjo-Kazooie? Well, it, it totally depends. So, like, no matter who the character is, I'm getting him because it's Smash Brothers. Um, and, I, and I'm and i a completionist, so I have to have the full roster, even if I don't play the character. Um, having <clears throat> Banjo and Kazooie is amazing. They're super, super fun to play. So totally worth it. Heroes, uh, fun. In its in its own way, um, and Joker's really annoying to fight against, but uh, but he's like a good character. So I don't, it it totally depends, man. Totally depends. I, I I'm a completionist, um, and I love Smash Brothers. So uh, of Twitter course I'm getting just... every character. Gotcha. I know I haven't gotten the DLC yet. I'm just waiting for the right moment to do it. Yeah, I, uh, but... I think it's worth it. And we got Terry uh, is going to be the next DLC character. Um, I've never played a, a King of Fighters or, or Fatal Fury game, but uh, but I'm excited for him. Yeah, I've never heard of it. I, and I'm... then there's more on the way, man. There's a there's lot more. more. There's even more? There's even more. There's the oh. fifth character in the Fighter Pass, and then they announced that they're doing even more after that. So, But wait, so like... there's more. That's right. There are more. <laughs> Are they doing like a Fighter Pass two, or are they just continuing on the Fighter Pass one? 
Well, no, Fighter Pass 1 ends with the fifth character. Uh, they haven't announced whether or not they're going to do another Fighter Pass or they're just going to release the characters solo. I'm not sure. I think it would depend on how many they do. Gotcha. You know, if they do three or more characters, maybe they'll do a Fighter Pass. If they only do two, I can't see why they would. Very good, very good. Uh, over this weekend, I watched the Conjuring, well, the, the two Conjuring movies, and uh, they hold up really well. I yeah. really enjoy those movies. Those are great movies. Yeah, I haven't watched any of the Annabelle movies, so I don't know how well they are or how well they tie in. I know Annabelle Comes Home ties in a lot with The Conjuring, um, like, because both, like, the actors from The Conjuring are in there, so I know it ties in a lot there, but I haven't watched That's... it. I've also, heard, I've also heard bad things about those movies, so I'm kind of, like, weary about watching them. Yeah, Annabelle stinks. Annabelle creation is not bad. And then there's okay. The Nun as well. And and The Nun really stinks. Yeah, and then I think The Curse of La Lorena is... nothing is... to do with, with The Conjuring. Yeah, I don't think it's associated. Not even... Oh. Nope, has nothing to do with it. Other than probably the Bloomhouse is the only connection. Um, There's going to be... Oh, you know what? No, the Curse of La Llorna. La Llorna, yes. It is part of the Conjuring universe. That is part of the Conjuring universe. Why? I don't Uh, know. It's produced by James Wan. That doesn't mean... And I think it has to do with one of the, like, the father. Or, um... Let's let's move on. We don't know. We've never seen it, so... Uh, but it's barely connected, so there you go. Uh, yeah, and then the Crooked Man is uh, is another movie that's going to be coming out, mm-hmm. which I'm excited for because the Crooked Man creeped me out in The Conjuring too. Sure, that was nuts. Um, okay, you finally saw Joker, right? Oh, I finally saw Joker. Jesus Christ! I was hoping you would have started with that when I started this whole thing. You know, I forgot about it. <laughs> Um, honestly, there, there are parts of the movie that it just dragged. It felt like a long movie and I did not like how they portrayed Joker as like an anti-hero, even though he kind of wasn't in the end. It just, cause that's not Joker, but in this, in this universe where Black Label or Elseworlds, they could do whatever. It's just, it was really jarring to see him be like a figurehead of uh, Uprising, I guess. I was going to ask you, in what way was he not an anti-hero? Yeah, and uh, if I ever ever have to see another Wayne origin, (laughs) I'm going to walk out. I don't need to see it ever again. I rolled my eyes so hard when that happened. But and... did that actually happen, or was that in his head? Yeah, well, that's the thing. Is that... the whole movie in his head? Right, Ooh. exactly. That part, that part with uh, Zazie Bates, is that her name? Yes? Zazie Beats? Zazie Beats? Yep. I, that was a jaw-dropping moment for me. Well, you realize that then the end of the movie reveals that the whole thing might have been fake. Or not fake, yeah. not fake, but in his head. <clears throat> it could have... It... 
It could be, or he did get captured and was put into Arkham. It's it could go either way, but I prefer that... I you know because this way there's no sequels. Uh, I prefer it all be in his head. I think that's way cooler. Yeah, I could see that happening, but I know I don't want I, I don't want there to be a, a story where this is he's the reason there's a Batman really. Yeah. Yeah, even though, like, yeah, he was the cause, even though Thomas Wayne was technically the cause of it, because he's the one that told told them that everyone was a clown. So. So it didn't work for you. It it didn't work for me for for that. His performance was great. Mm -hmm. Loved his performance. Just. The execution, I guess. <laughs> yeah, that's what everyone seems to be uh, uh, in agreement on. Well, Whether they liked the movie or they didn't, most people seem to think that he did a good job. And they're already asking that the, the Batman be connected to the Joker. They want to see Robert Pattinson's Batman take on this Joker, and no. I, I do not. <laughs> no. The Batman, any Batman destroys this Joker exactly. in, a, in a heartbeat. I think you and I mentioned it the first time we talked about it. it Yes, this this Joker is so weak. <laughs> and that's one of the only reasons why you can get away with telling this story without Batman. Uh, yes. Because if you put this version of Joker in a in a story with any version of Batman, he gets his ass kicked. No matter what mm-hmm. you think, he lasts less longer than Jared Leto's Joker. That's yeah. right. Uh, but I did like that there were uh, comic tie-ins. To Joker, like with his stand-up from like the Killing Joke, and the um, the after not the after show, what can the, uh, the 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 Robert talk, De Niro the, the talk, the talk show? show, yeah, yeah, the talk show that's from like Dark Knight Returns. <clears throat> I liked that, even if it, even if it wasn't like expressly like saying like that's where that's from. I liked that it was there. Yeah, it showed that the director knew a little bit of the Joker at least. Looking at you, <laughs> Tim Burton. Or or the producers told him, yeah, because <laughs> it is. Let's it's Todd Phillips. So I, I don't know how much research Todd Phillips did on the, <laughs> on the character. He, his movies are historically not smart. But so funny. you know how kind of each Joker that has appeared so far has been a product <coughs> product of its time. Sure. Right, like the Cesar Romero Joker was the Joker of the comics at that time. Mm-hmm. And the Jack Nicholson of the Joker was the Joker of the comics at that time. And the Heath Ledger version of Joker was the Joker of the comics at that time. But they've just dropped the ball with Jared Leto and and uh, uh, Joaquin. Joaquin Phoenix because the, the, neither of these characters are the Joker I or still, feel like the Joker. Right, right. I still stand by we haven't we didn't see enough of Leto's to really get like a real grasp of what it could have been. Mm-hmm. But yes, you're right. Um, neither one of them really connects with the character from the book at all. So yeah, I don't, um, yeah, I don't want to see this Joker tied into any Batman movie because of what Johnny said, and just because I just don't. Um, <laughs> <clears throat> so yeah, it, it, the the standalone is fine. I don't want a sequel, although they're saying a sequel is already underway. And that it will take place several years into the future. Uh, I don't want it. <clears throat> but Joaquin Phoenix and Todd Phillips said that they 
would have made like six hours of a movie if they could have at the time. So I'm sure it's going to happen. Uh, I wonder how much of it would have been dancing. <laughs> right, in slow motion. There was oh, a lot of dancing. God, the dancing was so boring. But, Johnny, you were wrong. He did not have sex with his mother. <laughs> mm, you sure about that? Yeah, pretty sure. Did uh, we I'm see also, everything? I don't know. I'm also glad that he wasn't a uh, bastard for uh, Thomas Wayne. <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. Maybe, yeah. Maybe he was. Maybe Thomas Wayne was lying. Either way, stupid. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I don't know. Did we talk about uh, the Riddler casting for the Batman last week? No. Um, all right. Well, there is an article up for all we know about the Batman so far, but uh, Paul Dano. Yeah, we did because Johnny talked about Paul Dano. Oh, yes. yeah. I'm yeah. sorry. Uh, was cast as the Riddler, and that's when I was writing that article. I remembered he was also in one of my favorite movies, The Girl Next Door. Mm, that's right. Um, but yeah. A good cast shaping up, I think. I'm going to wait and see on, on Pattinson. You know, I have, a, I have the feeling he can act uh, the role. But I need to see him kind of bulk up, which I guess he's been doing interviews and says he has. So, we'll see. <clears throat> um, Alright, so Joker. Talked about the Joker now, finally. And uh, Sorry, there were spoilers, but it's been out forever. And we've been waiting for Kyle to see it, who is slow on the uptake on certain things. Hey, be glad I finally saw it. Well, no, we were going to talk about it regardless at this point. Oh. We're, we were at the limit. <laughs> <laughs> um, I can't think of anything else that we need to touch on. Anybody else? Nope, I'm no, good. I think that's it. Let's, let's get into this uh, creepypasta. All right, so we're going to read these stories. Um, there's one more week of October by the, the, the calendars um, telling me so. And uh, so we'll have one more episode in this vein. I think we've chosen, it's either going to be our true crime <clears throat> episode, which I'm hoping we can get it on the books. I'm still waiting to hear back from Jenny, I believe. Um, and if not, we'll figure something else out. I have, I have a backup in mind in case that we can't do that. So uh, this week's scary stories, I'm going to just flip up the, the order that we're reading them because my throat's killing me and I need to go grab a cough drop. So uh johnny is gonna start and then go to kyle and then me so ooh, <clears throat> i'm still i'm still reading the one that was picked out earlier right uh the, yes the same one that yeah yeah we're not changing okay. that yep all right uh neither so of this... us i'm sorry i'm sorry real quick neither of us have read these ahead of time these are just pulled from the top ranked um of uh creepypasta.com so they must be good they're ranked fairly high um so uh go ahead johnny take it away all right. Uh, so the story that I have is the melancholy of Herbert Solomon. Are you guys ready? I am yes. so ready. Do you have the author? <clears throat> uh, written by Michael Whitehouse. There we go. And these are their usernames on Creepypasta, I assume. So um, yeah, yeah. We will That's give credit says. where credit is due. So, all right. Cool. Yeah. Let's do it. All right. Here we go. <clears throat> On several occasions, my interest in the supernatural has taken me to some of the most prestigious seats of learning in the entire United Kingdom. I'm not going to do that the whole time. 
Okay, From the venerable are... halls of Oxford and Cambridge to the more humble surroundings of inner city colleges and schools, my pursuit of evidence to substantiate such claims has rarely been fruitful. However, while exploring the University of St. Andrews in Scotland, I found a rather interesting tome hidden away in a dark and musty corner of the campus library. The book itself was unusual, the cover bound in a weathered and blackened leather, which unashamedly wore the wrinkles and cracks of time. It dated back to the 16th century and seemed to contain various descriptions of accounts of the daily lives of the people of Ettrick, a small isolated town built in the South Moorlands of the country. Perusing the volume, there were a variety of entities from a number of authors spanning a 60-year period. It seemed to have been handed down from town elder to town elder over that time. And to be quite frank, most of it contained idle musings on the townsfolk and plans for a number of humble building projects and improvements. <clears throat> Just as I was about to conclude that the book was of little interest to me, I noticed on the inside of the back cover that someone had drawn a picture. It was elegant... <clears throat> Excuse me. It was elegantly depicted, but I would never have described it as a pleasing sight. In fact, my immediate reaction was one of disgust upon first viewing it. The combination of the harsh, almost angry black lines used and the stark imagery of the scene as relayed by the artist left me with a thoroughly unpleasant impression of its subject. I shuddered as I cast my eye over it in an attempt to take in the picture of what seemed to be of a man, tall with long, thin arms and legs, his face was partially obscured by one of his gaunt white hands, but what could be seen was monstrous. Prominent veins protruded from his forehead leading up to a pallid bald head. His eyes were deep set into his skull, and the surrounding woods seemed to twist and lean away from him fearfully. At first I assumed that the picture was some form of hideous graffiti, but at the bottom of the page was inscribed the date of 1578, and a rather unusual name. Herbert Solomon. Whether this was the name of the menacing figure in the drawing or of the artist, I did not know. Disturbed and <coughs> compelled by that dark woodland scene, I decided that the book required further study. I desired greatly to know who this creature was and why someone had felt the need to capture this strange form in a drawing, a drawing at the back of a book otherwise used to record the lives of the townsfolk. On closer inspection, what surprised me further was that the same image seemed to recur elsewhere in the book, but drawn by apparently different individuals. Within the book, I found numerous mentions of Herbert Solomon, and it became clear quickly that he was indeed the emaciated man in the picture. He had lived in the 16th century on the outskirts of Etic Town. It was a small and underdeveloped place, surrounded on all sides by the thick cover of Ettrick Forest. It, which itself sat in the midst of a vast region of southern moorland. The town had a small parish church with one humble steeple, an inn normally used for those traveling through the unforgiving countryside, and quaint cobbled streets which wound their way around the stone cottages and town hall. According to the descriptions in the book, during the December of 1577, children began to disappear from the town. The first was a young girl by the name of Alana Sutherland. She had been playing with some friends by an old well on the outskirts of the town, but had dropped a, sm a small toy doll down it accidentally, which had caused her much distress. Unable to retrieve it, she returned home to borrow some string and an old hook in the hopes of being able to fish the doll out of the water below. 
She was last seen walking towards the well, just as the sun set. In a panic, the townsfolk searched. They dredged the well, they combed the wheat fields, and even sent several groups of those willing into the surrounding woods. Alas, the girl was not found. A few days later, a young boy by the name of Eric Kennedy was running an errand for his grandmother. It was dark, but he had only to take some wool over to the Monroe place as a way of a thanks for the grain they had provided, and they lived but only a few streets away. It was assumed that at least at the center of the town would be safe, but the boy never completed his errand. He vanished as if he were torn from existence. By the end of January, an unusually bitter winter had caused significant damage to the town and its people. Large, thick sheets of ice and snow covered each house and building. Several people died from the cold alone, and the general mood of Ettrick Town was a somber one. Despite these trying times, the townspeople were more concerned with the safety of their offspring. In total, seven children had now disappeared without rhyme or reason. Whole families wept in despair, and the people of Ettrick began to view one another suspiciously. They knew the truth. Someone was taking their children from them. By mid-February, two, had, two more had went missing, and accusatory glances were now being shared between every family and every member of the community. The town elder decided to act and took upon himself the arduous task of identifying and catching the fiend. Bureaucratic discussions were had, church groups convened, and in every house, in every street, in every corner of Ettrick, one name crossed the lips of its inhabitants, Herbert Solomon. The more the name was mentioned, the more certain his guilt became. Herbert Solomon was an outsider. He lived in a small wooden cabin among the woods which surrounded the town, and due to his unfortunate appearance, tended to avoid human contact. When his malady was was no one, what his malady was, no one was sure, and in the unenlightened times of 16th century Scotland, many believed that he was cursed. Modern eyes would have guessed him to be the victim of a wasting disease. He rarely ventured into town except on a few occasions to trade for supplies, and even in those instances he covered his face with a brown tarnished hat and a gray piece of cloth, which obscured his features below two deep-set and darkened eyes. Several of the townsfolk told stories of Herbert Solomon. According to these accounts, he would stand on the edge of the forest watching the farmers till their land and their children play in the fields. It was his fascination with children which left many feeling uneasy. Some of the town's children returned home from playing near the woods on a number of occasions with beautifully crafted dolls and toys. They were a present from Herbert Solomon, and being innocent <coughs> children, they could not know of the dangers therein. When the children began to disappear, eyes immediately turned to the strange man living in the woods. Accusations were carried by the whispers of fearful parents, and as the whispers increased in number, so did their volume, until it was decided that Herbert Solomon must be stopped. On a cold February night, the elders of the town decreed that Solomon should be arrested immediately. Grief, anger, resentment, and fear grew to a fever pitch with this news, and every man, woman, and child set out across the fields, entering into the surrounding forest in search of the child killer, Herbert Solomon. Details of exactly what occurred that night are limited, but it seems as though the people of Ettrick Town attempted to remove Herbert from his small cabin by setting it on fire. The crowds cheered as the heat grew and the fire rose. His screams echoed throughout the woods, finally to be silenced by the flames. 
The townsfolk believed that justice had been done, and while the grief of the parents whom had lost their children could never be quenched, there was at least the satisfaction of knowing that the man responsible was now dead. However, over the following few days, an unease descended upon the town. Stories began to spread of strange encounters in the streets at night, a gaunty, shadowy figure prowling the cobbled stones, hiding in the darkness. Within a week, numerous residents claimed to have woken up during the night to the petrifying sight of an unwelcome visitor. One account was of an elderly woman who woke to the sound of something rustling under her bed, only to nearly die of shock as a tall, thin man pulled himself out from underneath. She fainted, but not before she saw his face. A withered complexion as if, as if ravaged by disease, his <coughs> eyes blacker than night, and his hands comprised of tightly pulled skin over a bony interior. Another story consisted of a local tradesman who, while investigating a noise from his cellar, was confronted by a hideous figure, so tall and gaunt that it had to hunch over to avoid the low ceiling entirely, its sheet-white face flickering in the candlelight. The man managed to escape, but he refused to re-enter his premises. It became clear to the townspeople that the vengeful ghost of Herbert Solomon was still searching for other victims from beyond the grave, his hate and hideous form haunting the town which murdered him. With each passing day, the, sighting, the sightings grew in intensity and number. A fog descended on the town, and the people wept and grieved as the sound of Herbert Solomon terrorized each person night by night. He was seen wandering amongst the wheat fields in the cellars and lofts of cottage houses, his long gaping footsteps ringing out each night through the streets of Ettrick Town. They had been cursed. In life, Herbert Solomon had taken and murdered their children, and now in death he seemed to possess the twisted means to terrorize the entire town. Then the unthinkable happened. Another child went missing. A young orphan girl who often wandered the streets when she could not find a place to call home for the night, was heard screaming for her life. The townsfolk rushed to their windows, looking out but not daring to leave the imagery, the imaginary safety of their houses, paralyzed by fear. The screaming ceased quickly, and moments later, wandering aimlessly out of the fog, came the menacing figure of Herbert Solomon. He rushed down the street, his lifeless arms bashing against the houses which he passed, scraping the doors and windows with his rigid fingers, emitting an unnatural yell of anger and hatred on his way. The girl was gone, and the town grieved once more. In the preceding days, the fog grew denser, and with it came the unwelcome news of two more children taken. One, a girl whom after having a raging argument with her family, left the house never to be seen again. The other, a boy named Matthew, the son of a notable drunk, who was taken from his own bed by the hands of Solomon while the father lay unconscious from drink. During a church service, the unthinkable happened. Solomon appeared briefly in the aisles of the church, seemingly unaffected by consecrated ground. The congregation whimpered in horror and disdain as his warped, spindly form walked slowly behind a pillar and then vanished. It was indeed a show of influence. Hope was almost lost. Not even a place of worship could deny him, and he was now capable of entering any home at night and then taking whatever or whoever he wished. The town had to act or abandon the place altogether, but there was no guarantee that the curse of Solomon would not follow. The local vicar, a man by the name of Mackenzie, was asked by the people of Ettrick to use any sacred power which he was ordained to him, which was ordained to him. In an attempt to destroy or banish the spirit of Solomon, a plan was provided. 
the vicar and a few chosen individuals armed with torches, swords which had been blessed, and vials of holy water would take guard over the town waiting for the cursed figure of that child killer to show his face once more. Then they would confront him. Observing as much of the town as possible from several house windows, roofs, and a strategic street corners, Mackenzie's chosen waited. They did not, however, need to wait long. That night, the long, the lonely figure of Herbert Solomon appeared through the mist, walking the streets of Ettrick with purpose. Yells and screams rang out as people alerted one another that Solomon had returned. Families held their children close as dark thoughts consumed the town. Please spare my child. Take another's. Mackenzie was the first to confront him. He was shaken by the sight of, Son of Solomon's hideous, pallid face, rotten and ravaged. The gangly, spindly figure stood staring intently at the vicar through black, clouded eyes. Another man now joined, then another. Before long, Herbert Solomon was surrounded. Mackenzie instructed the men to slowly cl close the circle, drawing their swords with one hand while brandishing flaming torches with the other. Fear gripped them, but they knew this could be their only chance. Mackenzie threw a vial at Solomon's lumbering feet as he uttered a Christian psalm. Another man struck out with his torch. The blow crackled as the cloth-covered arm of Solomon caught fire. Cheers rang out from the townsfolk watching from their homes above, but the man had strayed too close, providing a gap in the circle which Solomon claimed with purpose. He fled. His spindly legs and flailing arms cast spider-like shadows on the walls and cobbled streets as he passed. The townsfolk gave chase, following the pathetic figure as it negotiated each street corner, lane, and courtyard in an attempt to escape their rage. The noise alerted the town. Herbert Solomon is trying to flee. From every home across the town, people poured out of their houses, carrying whatever they could as way of a makeshift weapon. They flooded the streets and ran towards the, pro the protestations, shouts, and screams of Solomon's pursuers. With every turn of a cobbled street corner, Solomon was running out of a place to hide. Finally, as he stumbled down the town's main street, he stopped. The townsfolk had, the townsfolk had blocked all escape routes. He was trapped. Mackenzie pushed his way to the front of the crowd, asking for quiet and calm as he approached the hunched, defeated figure of Herbert <clears throat> Solomon. He and his chosen few were going to rid the town of Ettrick of this abomination once and for all. <clears throat> Violin hand, accompanied by several large bullish men brandishing, brandishing swords, Mackenzie approached slowly, reciting verses from the Bible. Though dark eyes, through dark eyes, Herbert Solomon observed the townsfolk, their faces etched with hate and thoughts of revenge, moving towards him. And then he simply turned and entered an open doorway next to him. The people gasped, and Mackenzie and his followers rushed inside after him. The house they had entered was still, and lying on the hard wooden floor of the main hallway was the pale body of a young girl. The creaking of floorboards under weight sounded above as numerous pursuers searched the house, disappointed to find nothing. Then something miraculous occurred. The little girl gasped for air. She was still alive. She had little or no strength. All she could do was utter one word, below. In the cellar of the house, Mackenzie found a grim and horrific scene. The floor was covered in blood, and the quiet body and the quiet dead body of a man lay face down upon it. Chained to the walls of the dim place were the children who had been taken. They were partially drugged, malnourished, and traumatized, but they were still alive. The town rejoiced with the news. Families were reunited, and lives were mended. The mist of a bleak and horrible winter slowly lifted, and all seemed well. On regaining their strength, the, killed, the children recounted what had befallen them.
Each of them had been taken by a man named called Tom Sutherland. He was the father of the first girl who had went missing, and it appeared it was he whom had killed her. No one knew for sure, but many were aware of his bad temper, and on more than one occasion he had beaten poor Elena. Consumed by guilt and loss, Sutherland began taking children at knife point and locking them in his cellar, often drugging them with a local herb and occasionally beating them while pathetically weeping in his self-pity. On the day that the children were found, Sutherland entered the cellar drunk, carrying a knife and rope. He began striking the children once more and told them that one the and told that one would die that day. He untied one of the children and pinned her to the ground with his knees. The knife hovered over her neck, but just as he was about to plunge the blade into her, someone entered the house. Sutherland grew ferocious with anger, but whoever was standing at the top of the staircase struck such fear into him that he quickly backpedaled into the cellar. Ducking under the doorway was the tall, scarred figure of Herbert Solomon. At the sight of him, and now being free, the little girl crawled quickly between Herbert's long legs. She was free, but too weak to run. She fainted before she could escape the house. Details of what happened to Tom Sutherland were muddied by the unstable, semi-conscious condition of the witnesses, but it was clear that his neck was broken, his head twisted with such force that it faced in a natural opposite direction. (coughs) There were various accounts of subsequent glimpses of Herbert Solomon, and some of the children claimed to find beautifully crafted dolls and toys on occasion, sitting at the edge of the woods, but of course this cannot be substantiated. Indeed, I would have said that the entire story could not be substantiated if it were not for the events which I experienced several months after reading that old book in the depths of St. Andrew's University. A colleague and dear friend of mine invited me to stay at his family home for a few days in the countryside. I knew that the house was in the borders, not half an hour's drive from Ettrick, and could not miss the chance to have a closer look at the area. I had managed to persuade the powers of be to allow me to take the book from St. Andrew's and show it to my friend. He had particular interest and not insignificant knowledge of the history of the area. I thought perhaps he could shine a light on this curious tale. His family were very kind to me, and the house and its grounds were the scene uh, were serene in the summer sun, with his children playing in the fields, having a carefree and happy time. After reading the book, he told me that it was fascinating, and that he knew of a local poem which had been written in the 17th century about a man called Solomon who killed children, but he could not tell me any more. The next day, we heard screams coming from the nearby house. It was my friend's little girl. We raced outside. Following the cries for help over an old fence and down a steep, grassy hill, we reached a winding and furious river. The girl had fallen in and was clinging to a large tree root, which thrust out from the opposite embankment into the embankment into the water. The root was wet, and my friend let out a scream of anguish as his daughter lost her grip, being swept downstream towards a large formation of huge sharp rocks which jutted out from beneath the surface. The river would not let go, and was throwing her around with such force that it was difficult to see how she could survive. Filled with the abject terror that she could drown, we finally made it to the water's edge. As we rushed into the murky torrent, we watched helplessly as the poor little girl was about to crash into the rocks. We were too far away. Suddenly, our attention was grabbed by the cracks and creaks of a tall, gaunt figure at the other side of the river, rushing out of the woods at tremendous speed on the opposite bank. On the opposite bank, with one swift motion, a thin, bony hand plunged into the violent water, prevailing against the immense current, <coughs> finally pulling the little girl to safety. She was alive, frightened, crying, but alive and unhurt. The pale-faced, emaciated figure placed the girl gently to the ground, stared at us from across 
the water through darkened eyes as we ourselves clamored to safety, then turned and disappeared into the woods, fading away to nothing but a memory. Even in death, Herbert Solomon was the kindest, kindest and gentlest of souls. <clears throat> and that's it. Interesting. I wasn't creepy at all. No, it wasn't. No. Um, I mean, there was right. a there was a, a murderous a child murder in there, but mm-hmm. it was a story about a hero. Yeah, but who hasn't murdered a child? Uh, me. Uh, me. Well, that oh I, right, right, me either. I mean, that I know <laughs> that I know of. I mean, I I guess. I mean, something could have I like sleepwalking or something. Pulling out counts, right? Oh jeez. <laughs> Technically genocide, mm. I guess. <laughs> I guess masturbating would be too. Oh, that's true. <clears throat> Kyle. Right. Uh, mine is called Don't Let Them In, and it is written by Maddie Kate. All right. Get your s'mores ready, everyone. Gather around the campfire. Here we go. Did you say s'mores or s'mores? Sh- I, I said it how I said it. S'mores. Hmm. So I say, addiction took our mother slowly, rocked her through it, and sung her to sleep, sunk deep into the mattress on her bed. When her back teeth fell out, she left them on the side of the bathtub. I was seven, and I kept them in a match in a matchbox. The missing pieces of her of her kept safe so that she wouldn't be lost forever. So maybe one day we would put her back together. Our how our house around us and we tried our best to raise ourselves the ceilings had water damage the bottom stairs had dry rot and in the winters the radiators bled rust but it was still our house and annie made it a home my sister annie mothered me with lopsided band-aids on bruised knees and lukewarm microwave meals she told me ghost stories and didn't mind when i crawled into her bed later on too scared to sleep alone she taught me to dance barefoot on the living room carpet Music channel on full volume on the TV and shaking our predolescent hips. Pre predolescent hips. Interesting. Okay. She always let me shower first so that I could enjoy the hot water and never complained when she had to make do with the cold. She brushed my hair every day before school, even when I screamed and hit her when she caught the tangles. Annie was dark haired like her father. Whoever he had been whoever he had been, but I was blonde. Annie was desperate to be blonde, too, like Marilyn Monroe, like Mom. I think she thought it would make them closer, remind Mom less of her dad. I'd give anything for her to have her hands in my hair one more time, even if it hurt. She moved to New York when I turned 18 and never came back. I still dream about her sometimes. Keeping up with our mother was impossible, and we learned from a young age that we would always be left behind. It didn't make it any easier. When she was drinking light, she was radiant and would wake us up at 3 a.m. with pancakes dripping in cherry syrup. Sometimes when the weather was right, she'd ha- she'd have enough drink. She had enough being drunk alone. She would call her school up and tell them we both had to that we both came down with summer sickness and that we drive to the beach instead. I remember being nine years old in the back seat of the car, coming home after one of our ocean days, sucking the salt from my fingers. Annie had just dyed her hair blonde. Her best friend Jane helping her bend over our kitchen sink. From behind, I couldn't tell who who was the mother and who was the daughter. Radio up and windows down, blowing the sky inside. When she was drinking heavily, she'd be out all night, 
hair piled up like a beauty queen, eyes glazed over and ringing with glitter and black. Sometimes she'd be gone a day or two. She would never give us advance notice. One day we'd just wake up to an empty house, with the fridge packed full and a post-it note on the door, complete with a, sh- with a smear of mom's lipstick on the outline, in the outline of a kiss, telling us she'd be back soon. Sometimes she'd bring, she'd bring guys home, filling the table with beer cans and ashtrays, smoking smoke up to the ceiling, mom lost in the haze. We'd sleep with pillows over our heads, trying to drown out the music they would blast all night, and wake up to strangers at our kitchen table in the morning, asking us where we kept the coffee. When mom drank too little, she fell apart. She wouldn't buy food, and the refrigerator went bare. She couldn't <coughs> smoke, leaving cigarette burns on the wallpaper by the st- up by the stairs like the walls were sick and decaying. She barely slept, walking around the blue half moons, walking around with blue half moons under her eyes, knuckles raw. She would scream at the slightest thing. I remember once when I spilled a glass of juice on the couch. She looked over at me with dead eyes and dragged me off onto the carpet and then took every single cushion off the couch and into the backyard and set them on fire. Annie went to watch a while from the window and then sat next to me on the floor, backs pressed against the skeleton of the seats, head resting in the in the crater of my collarbones. It was the worst when Mom drank too much. She laughed too loudly and too long at anything and everything until her mouth started to shake and she began to cry into her cereal at the breakfast table. Annie shut down when Mom was like this, going somewhere deep inside herself where no one could hurt her. She'd stay up until the morning watching old black and white movies on the TV, whispering the lines she knew by heart like prayers. When I was five years old, I'd cry when I find my mom passed out on her bed. Sure, she was sure she would never wake up. Annie would wipe my tears and tell me she was only sleeping, like the princesses in my story in my storybook. We'd sit on mom's bed together and wait for her to wake up. When we were older, I was the one who would pick mom off the bathroom floor again and again, and Annie would put her to bed, smoothing her hair off her face, wiping the vomit from her mouth and changing her clothes if she pissed herself. Watching them then, there was no doubt that Annie was the mother now. It was October and I was 13, Annie 16. It was a Wednesday night and mom had been gone for two days. She called us that morning from a payphone, voice slurring, telling us she was having the best time with all of her new friends and that she would hope, and that she hoped that we were doing fine. <coughs> when she asked me if I was having a good birthday, I hung up on her. My birthday had been the day before. Annie had given me a pile of presents, strawberry lip gloss and glittery nail polishes. I didn't ask where she'd gotten the money for them. I didn't care. We'd taken the bus to the beach with Jane and ate the birthday cake she made for me, sand getting into the frosting. It tasted like sweetness and the sea, and I savored every bite and scrape, and scrape of sugar against my teeth. We watched the sun go down, Annie snapping grainy photos on her Nokia, as I blew up my candles, wishing over and over that my mom wouldn't come home, that she stayed gone this time. But that Wednesday night, Annie and I weren't speaking. Anger hung heavy between us, seeping through the floorboards. It began when she when she tripped at the bottom of the stairs. We both laughed. Annie throwing her head back and the gap between her front teeth catching the light. When I bent to pick her up, I felt her breath, warm against the freckles on my cheek. I let go of her arms, and she fell again. 
hitting the floor and grinning, shaking her hair from her face. Her breath was heavy with whiskey. I couldn't start I couldn't start picking her up too. <clears throat> I couldn't watch her fall again and again, just like mom. I knew she'd never get back up. I'd stared down at her, blonde hair hanging over her eyes, and all I could see was our mother. <clears throat> then I was running, feet slamming the hallway like heartbeats turned loose. I'd run for the kitchen and tipped every bot and tipped every bottle we had down the sink, shoving Anne back as she fought to stop me, catching liquor on her fingers as she f- as it fell. She grabbed my shoulders and made me drop the the very last bottle. It smashed between us on the floor, glass shards shining like we dragged the stars out of the sky and broken them, like pieces we could never put back. Outside through the open window, the sky turned pale gold, and the clouds was a the clouds a mess of pink and cream smeared across the horizon. I cried then, watching my sister on her knees picking up the pieces. That was Annie, always trying to fix things, even when it was too late. The smell of food dragged me from my room, my stomach turning traitor inside my ribcage. Annie was cooking pasta, real food, not made in the microwave. She'd set the table. Ten <coughs> wine it singing softly from the CD player. Annie great, gently swaying her hips as she stirred the tomato sauce, rich and warm. As we ate in silence, I forgave her more with every bite. Mom never cooked dinner, never remembered my favorite when never never remembered my favorite had been spaghetti since I was a kid and never stayed sober long enough to s- sit at a table. Annie wasn't mom. When we were washing the dishes, we first heard it. A moth was crawling down the inside of the pane, and I cracked the window to let it out into the dark. From the backyard came a faint sound. I tilted my head to listen as it, as it was coming from far off, crying. I figured it was was uh, Mika, the two-year-old next door, having a tantrum loud enough for us to catch, or maybe even Lucky Strike, the cat that belonged to the junkies down the street, begged for food like he did sometimes. I always wanted to feed him when he came around, winding at my ankles, but Annie always stopped me, saying, once you started giving that, they never stopped talking, never stopped taking. Looking back, I didn't think she was talking about the cat. Annie flipped the Christmas Christmas lights strung up around the porch, and then we sat on the plastic beach chairs watching the skies. When we were little, we'd sit outside, and Annie would tell me all the names of the constellations and the stories of how they came up how they came to be hung up in the night sky. I had to grow up. I had to grow up before I realized she made them all up as she went along. It was a game we still like to play now, making up ridiculous stories for the shapes we could pick out. Ah, yes, that one there is the Coors Light. It got there when God dropped it out of his convertible window and never picked up, she said, nodding sagely and hiding her smile. Of course, I said waving my hands and pointing up past the power lines, right next to the ashtray, left by the angels on a smoking break. Yeah, they say if you wish on it, all your dreams will come true, said Annie with a grin. Then she stopped laughing, and her voice grew quiet, face tilted up to all those dead stars. Let's wish, Emmy. Let's wish. So we did. The sound of wailing interrupted us. It was closer this time and definitely human. We turned to one another in confusion. Annie shrugged, and I squinted into the black. 
It sounded like a baby, lost, <coughs> tired, and alone. It must be Micah, I said, slowly getting to my feet. Maybe he walked around the back. Do you want to call Connie and tell her we'll bring him over? Annie didn't reply. I sighed and I rolled my eyes. Okay, I guess I'll do everything then. I stepped off the porch, grass softly against my heels. The air smelled like it might rain, fresh and clean and growing, a promise unfulfilled. M, Anne's voice was strained. I turned to her with a smile. It died on my face when I saw the look on her. M, get inside now. She was staring out to the dark, past me, and opening the door with one hand behind her, fingers fumbling on the latch. I froze, barefoot in the dirt. I'd glimpsed at what she was looking at. In the bushes by the back of the fence, by the back fence, someone was crouch was crouching, with their knees tucked up, neatly under his chin, and his arms wrapped around his legs. His mouth was agape, slowly opening and closing as he cried, like a child, lost in the dark. No, not like a child. More like someone pretending, mimicking the sound under the cover of darkness. Suddenly, they strained their back, snapping upright face still obscured by shadow. They were tall and slim, extraordinarily thin by human standards. Panic made me move, carried forward by animal instincts left over from a time when people still lived in nature. I was faster than Annie, dragging her inside and slamming the door behind us, hearing it bounce on its hinges as I locked it. We watched as the person slowly approached the house with long, deliberate strides. Annie reached out and he reached for my hand, holding me tight, and turned to me to face her, holding my shoulders. Don't turn around, Emmy. Don't turn around. Instinctively, I started to look over my shoulder into the gloom. And he grabbed my face hard and shook her head. I knew that she was serious. I... Her voice cracked, and she cleared her throat, gripping my hand tight enough to hurt, nose digging in, grounding herself. I looked down at her, at our interlocked fingers, both of us born of the same bones. I'm going to call the cops, and everything is going to be... Her voice faltered and stuttering. Tears spilled over her lashes. Annie never cried. Your phone's on the porch, she whispered, and bile crawled its way up to my throat. Her phone was upstairs, charging. A soft tap, tap, tap (coughs) filled the silence. Annie turned wide-eyed to the window. It was the sound of someone's forehead slowly and repeatedly bumping up against the glass. And the blows accelerated, gaining in both speed and strength. Skin meeting the glass, and then they were slamming into the window hard enough to shake the panes. A moment later, the tapping stopped, and I was about to ask Annie if I could look now. When she screamed, followed by the sound of cracking glass and a tremendous crash. Whoever was in our yard had just smashed their face hard enough into the window to shatter it. We ran up up the stairs two steps at a time, skipping the rotted ones out of habit. I turned to look behind me, and Annie yanked my face back before I could see. The sound of glass breaking echoed behind us as we made it to the bathroom and locked the door. A weak, mewing, mewling cry, like that of an infant crawling for its mother, filled the hallway, trapped between the walls and entryways. Annie threw her back against the door, feet jammed up against the bathtub, clutching a knife she had grabbed from the kitchen. I joined her shoulder to shoulder and did the same. Slow footsteps started on the stairs, calculated and casual. The crying 
took on a mocking quality resembling laughter, arriving in short, shrill bursts of sound followed by high-pitched giggling and then silence, only to start again a moment later. The first door on the upstairs floor was my bedroom, and we heard the distinct sound of it slamming open. They were looking for us. What the fuck is going on? I asked Annie, not even bothering to brush away the tears that I couldn't keep from falling. I watched my sister pick herself up off the floor and brace brace her hands on the door as we heard this, the sound of a second door slamming open. Mom's room. The next room on the hallway was the bathroom. And he pulled me to my feet and handed me the knife. I shook my head and pushed it back to her, terrified of what would happen if I had to use it. And he shoved me and pressed the knife into my hands, thumb pressing hard enough, hard enough along the edge to draw blood. I watched a winding road of crimson riv- rivlets cascading down her wrist. In the spite of pain, and he continued pushing the blade into my hands. Finally, I took it from her. Something slammed up against the wall that mom. Something slammed up against the wall that mom's room shared with the bathroom. A high-pitched howl followed. I held my breath and felt my heart beating frantically in the base of my throat. I'm gonna get the phone from my room, my sister said. I shook my head dramatically in protest. Before I could say a word, and he clamped a hand over my mouth. I could taste the blood on her hand, salty and sweet, like birthday cake by the ocean. Yes, I'm gonna get the phone. And I'm gonna call the cops. We're gonna be okay. I shook my head again. It's the only way, Annie insisted. When I go, I need you to lock the door, and I don't want you to open it for anything or anyone. Not for me, not for anyone. Promise me. I shook my head, and Annie pressed her hand against my mouth, pressing my teeth against my lips, so I forcefully. So forcefully, it made my water's eyes. It made my eyes water. Blech. Promise me, Em. Something smashed into the room next door, and he brushed the hair from my face and gently tucked it behind my ear. Promise, she mouthed, and unlocked the door as slowly as possible, the bolts scraping gently. I watched the curve of her shoulder disappear into the darkness, into the darkened hall, like the moon in eclipse. And then she was gone. I couldn't move or breathe for a second. And then I slammed the bolt shut, just as something bounced off the outside of the door. A high-pitched scream ensued, followed by the handle rattling up and down hard enough to pop a screw loose. I watched it roll toward me on the tiles, and then everything went still. I sat with my back to the door, holding the knife and wishing I was holding Annie's hand instead. The silence continued. For a moment, the only sound was that of my breath slowly filling the room. A voice broke the illusion of solitude. M, a familiar voice came through the door. Startled, I gripped the knife even more firmly than before. Honey, what's going on? Mom? My voice cracked. Mama, is that you? I wrapped my arms around myself to keep from shaking. Sweetie, it's okay. Just open the door. It's okay. Just let me in. The handle rattled again, gentler this time. Just let me in. It's it's all okay. She banged impatiently on the door, and then and I took my handle of the bolt. Honey, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I missed your birthday. I'm sorry I'm such a terrible mother. Please. Her voice broke, and she started to cry. Just let me in, baby. I'm so sorry. I screwed my eyes shut. She sounded so sad and so lost. I 
just wanted her to hold me like she did when I was a kid, when I'd come in and with a scraped knee after falling off the swing. Maybe this time she meant it. Perhaps it would be all okay. My hand found the way to it to the bolt again. My sister's voice came through the door, warm and gentle. Yeah, Emily, let us in. It's all okay. My hand froze on the bolt. I tightened my grip on my weapon. I mean, Annie never called me by my full name. A hand banged on the door, handled, handle rattling. Emily let us in. Annie's voice became low and gutterful, gutter, guttural, followed by the same shrill giggles from before. Mom spoke now, pleading and crying, a voice growing louder and louder. Let us in! Let us in! Let us in! She shouted over and over again, punctuated by her fists on the door. I thought, I thought about bedtime stories and all the demons and monsters we pray never crawl up from outside of our beds. That's not my sister, and you're not my mother. I screamed through the door, hand, hands over my head. I climbed into the bathtub, curled into the feet, curled into the fetal position, and clutched the knife to my chest. I didn't know. I didn't know what it was outside that door, but I knew it wasn't Annie. It hasn't the voice that scolded me whenever I changed the TV channel. The one that sang me happy birthday. The one that told me I was smart even when I got bad grades. The one that read, read me bedtime stories about princesses <coughs> that never wake up. It wasn't human. Bangs and yells came from downstairs, followed by the footsteps of people running. A low guttural howl ripped through the house, filling the room until I felt like I was drowning in the sound. And then the door was kicked in. I screamed, covered my eyes, and waited to die. A moment later, arms found me, lifted me from the tub, and carried me from the room. I looked outside of the door as I was taken downstairs. Its exterior was covered in long, scraping claw marks stretching to the floor. I found the hallway covered in the soft, downy remains of torn up pillows, making it appear as if it had snowed indoors. I watched the tiny feathers drift slowly as men in uniforms checked each of the rooms that looked like they had been ripped apart by something Furl. Outside, police cars and ambulances waited in our driveway, and there, in the middle of it all, was Annie, bathed in blue and red light and glowing in the dark like a neon angel. I threw myself from the officer's shoulders and ran to her. Then I, he then I held us both together, broken pieces and all, standing under all those constellations we'd concocted. Muffled screaming came from the ambulance, which rocked occasionally. Annie gently turned my head away, smiling so I, smiling so sadly it made my chest ache. I understood. It turns out there was no demon. No wild animal or bad men were trying to break in. It was just mom. Out of her mind on booze, drugs, and everything in between. Coming to the end of a week-long binge. Something had finally broken inside her head. And this time we couldn't put her back together no matter how hard we tried. Sometimes you fall one last time and then never get back up. Annie had seen her rail-thin frame in the garden, blood dribbling from her mouth, track marks bulging on her forearms like an unmapped, like unmapped robes, desperate for one more hit, one more fix. She'd, she searched the kitchen for all the alcohol had <coughs> thrown away, and when she hadn't found any, she went hunting for the stash hidden in the bathroom. She hadn't wanted me. Just the drugs on the other side of the door. She'd been so high, she was able to mimic Annie's voice nearly nearly perfectly. 
the real monsters are the ones that eat you alive slowly. The kind that comes in a bottle or a needle. Or at the end of a long list of reasons why you can't get out of the bed of the morning. Sometimes the monsters are the ones that you the ones that raise you or love you the most. But it's up to you to let them in. And that's it. This website is very deceiving. <laughs> um that was I mean at least mine had a ghost. Right. <clears throat> right. I, I, I don't mean <laughs> I mean depending uh, on how you look at it. No. I don't want to look at it anymore. All right. Uh while you were reading that very long story about uh depressing matter, um I found a short story <clears throat> that I, is lives up to the creepypasta name, I think. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh and I apologize for my voice. My my throat is not feeling very well today. So, uh this is written by Perfect Circle 35. <clears throat> Here we go. This will be the last one, and then we're done for the night, uh, or for the episode, and uh, we won't do this ever again. Um, oh. <laughs> we will, but we'll do more research before we do it, something like that. Uh, we'll find better better fitting stories for the, the subject matter. Uh, here we go. All right. During my childhood, my family was like a drop of water in a vast river, never remaining in one location for long. We settled in Rhode Island when I was eight, and there we remained until I went to college in Colorado Springs. Most of my memories are rooted in Rhode Island, but there are fragments in the attic of my brain which belong to the various homes we lived in when I was much younger. Most of these memories are unclear and pointless, chasing after another boy in the backyard of a house in North Carolina, trying to build a raft to float on the creek behind the apartment we rented in Pennsylvania, and so on. But there is one set of memories which remains as clear as glass, as though they were just made yesterday. I often wonder whether these memories are simply lucid dreams produced by the long sickness I experienced that spring, but in my heart, I know they are real. We were living in a house just outside the, uh, the bustling metropolis of New... <coughs> excuse me. <clears throat> the bustling metropolis of New Vineyard, Maine. Population 643. It was a large structure, especially for a family of three. There were a number of rooms that I didn't see in the five months we resided there. In some ways, it was a waste of space, but it was the only house on the market at the time at least within an hour's commute to my father's place of work. The day after my fifth birthday, attended by my parents alone, I came down with a fever. The doctor said I had mononucleosis, which meant no rough play and more fever for at least another three weeks. It was horrible timing to be bedridden. We were in the process of packing our things to move to Pennsylvania, and most of my things were already packed away in boxes, leaving my room barren. <clears throat> my mother brought me ginger ale and books several times a day, and these serve the function of being my primary form of entertainment. Boredom always loomed just around the corner, waiting to rear its ugly head and compound my misery. I don't exactly recall how I met Mr. Widemouth. I think it was about a week after I was diagnosed with mono. My first memory of the small creature was asking him if he had a name. He told me to call him Mr. Widemouth because his mouth was large. In fact, everything about him was large in comparison to his body. His head, his eyes, his crooked ears... But his mouth was by far the largest. You look kind of like a Furby, I said as he flipped through one of my books. Mr. Widemouth stopped and gave me a puzzled look. Furby, what's a Furby, he asked. I shrugged, you know, the toy, the little robot with the big ears. You can pet and feed them, almost like a real pet. Oh, Mr. Widemouth resumed his activity. You don't need one of those. They aren't the same as having a real friend. 
I remember Mr. Widemouth disappearing every time my mother stopped by to check in on me. I lay under your bed, he later explained. I don't want your parents to see me because I'm afraid they won't let us play anymore. We didn't do much during those first few days. Mr. Widemouth just looked at my books, fascinated by the stories and pictures they contained. Third or fourth morning after I met him, he greeted me with a large smile on his face. I have a new game we can play, he said. We have to wait until after your mother comes to check on you because she can't see us play. It's a secret game. After my mother delivered more books and soda at the usual time, Mr. Widemouth slipped out from under the bed and tugged my hand. We have to go to the room at the end of this hallway, he said. I drifted at first as my parents had forbidden me to leave my bed without their permission, but Mr. Widemouth persisted until I gave in. The room in question had no furniture or wallpaper. Its only distinguishing feature was a window opposite the doorway. Mr. Widemouth darted across the room and gave the window a firm push, flinging it open. He then beckoned me to look out at the ground below. We were on the second story of the house, but it was on a hill, and from this angle the drop was farther than two stories due to the incline. I like to play pretend up here, Mr. Widemouth explained. I pretend there is a big, soft trampoline below this window, and I jump. If you pretend hard enough, you bounce back up like a feather. I want you to try. <clears throat> I was a five-year-old with a fever, so only a hint of skepticism darted through my thoughts as I looked down and considered the possibility. It's a long drop, I said. But that's all part of the fun. It wouldn't be fun if it was only a short drop. If it were, if it were that way, you may as well just bounce on a real trampoline. I toyed with the idea, picturing myself falling through thin air only to bounce back to the window on some un something unseen by human eyes. But the realist in me prevailed. Maybe some other time, I said. I don't know if I have enough imagination. I could get hurt. Mr. Widemouth's face contorted into a snarl, but only for a moment. Anger gave way to disappointment. If you say so, he said. He spent the rest of the day under my bed, quiet as a mouse. The following morning, Mr. Widemouth arrived holding a small box. I want to teach you how to juggle, he said. Here are some things you can use to practice before I start giving you lessons. I looked in the box. It was full of knives. My parents will kill me, I shouted, horrified that Mr. Widemouth had brought knives into my room. Objects that my parents would never allow me to touch. I'll be spanked and grounded for a year. Mr. Widemouth frowned. It's fun to juggle with these. I want you to try it. I pushed the box away. I can't. I'll get in trouble. Knives aren't safe to just throw in the air. Mr. Widemouth's frown deepened into a scowl. He took the box of knives and slid under my bed, remaining there the rest of the day. I began to wonder how often he was under me. I started having trouble sleeping after that. Mr. Widemouth often woke me at night, saying he put a real trampoline under the window, a big one, one that I couldn't see in the dark. I always declined and tried to go back to sleep, but Mr. Widemouth persisted. Sometimes he stayed by my side until early in the morning, encouraging me to, encouraging me to jump. <clears throat> he wasn't so fun to play with anymore. My mother came to me one morning and told me I had her permission to walk around outside. She thought the fresh air would be good for me, especially after being confined to my room for so long. Ecstatic, I put on my speakers and trotted out to the back porch, yearning for the feeling of sun on my face. <clears throat> Mr. Widemouth was waiting for me. I have something I want you to see, he said. I must have given him a weird look because then he said, it's safe, I promise. I followed him to the beginning of a deer trail which ran through the woods behind the house. This is an important path, he explained. I've had a lot of friends about your age. When they were ready, I took them down this path to a special place. You aren't ready yet, but one day I hope to take you there. I returned to the house, wondering what kind of place lay beyond that trail. Two weeks after I met Mr. Widemouth, the last load of our things had been packed into a moving truck. 
I would be in the cab of that moving truck, sitting next to my father for the long drive to Pennsylvania. I considered telling Mr. Widemouth that I would be leaving, but even at five years old, I was beginning to suspect that perhaps the creature's intentions were not to my benefit, despite what he said otherwise. For this reason, I decided to keep my departure a secret. My father and I were in the truck at 4 a.m. <clears throat> he was hoping to make it to Pennsylvania by lunchtime tomorrow with the help of an endless supply of coffee and a six-pack of energy drinks. He seemed more like a man who was about to run a marathon rather than one who was about to spend two days sitting still. Early enough for you, he asked. I nodded and placed my head against the window, hoping for some sleep before the sun came up. I felt my father's hand on my shoulder. This is the last move, son, I promise. I know it's hard for you, as sick as you've been. Once Daddy gets promoted, we can settle down and you can make friends. I opened my eyes as we backed out of the driveway. I saw Mr. Widemouth's silhouette in my bedroom window. He stood motionless until the truck was about to turn onto the main road. He gave a pitiful little wave goodbye, steak knife in hand. I didn't wave back. <clears throat> Years later, I returned to New Vineyard. The, plate, uh, excuse me, the piece of land our house stood upon was empty except for the foundation as the house burned down a few years after my parents left. Out of curiosity, I followed the deer trail that Mr. Widemouth had shown me. Part of me expected him to jump out from behind a tree and scare the living bejesus out of me, but I felt that Mr. Widemouth was gone, somehow tied to the house that no longer existed. The trail ended at the New Vineyard Memorial Cemetery. I noticed that many of the tombstones belonged to children. The end. So kids, don't talk to strangers, even ones with creepy smiles on their faces. <clears throat> yeah, that one's not bad. Yeah, yeah, that's good. That one fit, I think, fit what we were looking for. All right, so usually this time of year we read your paranormal stories. I didn't want to reach out to you guys this time. I wanted to try something a little different. Uh, go into the creative world of fiction. Um, and it was hit or miss, but... <laughs> Next time, we'll uh, we'll read these beforehand and find really good ones, juicy ones to, to do, because uh, I think it'll work better. And maybe not have Kyle read. Oh. <laughs> or we'll, we'll get him a shorter story, is what I meant to say. I was, I was just kidding. That was Those were long. It's hard to read when they're so long. <clears throat> um, and kind of Look, I barely passed high school. Just give, just get, let, just let me have it, guys. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Alright, we will be back next week again with uh, either true crime or something different. Something I think Jenny recommended that uh, I think sounded really good. So we'll do that if we can't do true crime. I'm hoping to do the true crime episode because I've been anxious to do that one for a couple months now. So um, Hopefully we'll be able to do that next week. But either way, we'll have an episode for you. Um, but in the meantime, hit us up on social media at Atomic Geekdom. I have uh, several uh, interviews lined up, uh, hopefully for November. So um, November will be kind of busy with uh, us uh, asking questions to certain people in the world of geekdom. So in the meantime, at Atomic Geekdom on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, all that good stuff. Uh, especially Instagram this weekend as we'll be at a convention. <clears throat> sure to be taking good pictures and videos and all that kind of good stuff. But if you want to talk to us individually, Johnny, you're on social medias. I am. I'm at Johnny <clears throat> Wellens. All right. And Kyle? Uh, and I am on Twitter at Kyle Krause 89 <clears throat> And? And also you can listen to me on the Legend. And Grinder. <laughs> and... <laughs> Nailed it. 
I was going to say Amish are us, but okay. Um, you can listen to me on the Alleged TV Talk podcast uh, wherever you find your podcasts. There you go. All right. Thank you so much for listening. Sorry if this wasn't your your cup of tea as it our normal podcast might be, but uh, we're trying some different stuff, doing some different things. We want to branch out a little bit from the regular format, do some different stuff. Plus, October is a little different special type stuff. You know, I'm going to say stuff like six or seven more times. So I'm going to stop talking now. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you, boys, for hanging in there with me. Yarp. Yeah, thank you. Something a little different. And, uh, yeah, we'll be back next week. Say goodbye, everybody. Bye. Bye. Goodbye.